The views and opinions expressed by the host, guests, and or team of TOTS Podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the feelings or beliefs of the podcast as a whole. There is a case discussed during the course of this episode. Conversations on this case are to be taken as commentary. For more information, please contact the United States District Court for the Western District of Oklahoma, case number CR18. 227-SLP. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of TOTS. I'm your host, Ben Gardner. Today on the show, we have a very special guest. I think you will recognize her. We have Carol Baskin, who is the founder and CEO of Big Cat Rescue. Carol, welcome to the show. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, We've been speaking for a couple weeks. And I got to say, before we started talking, uh, and I think you know this, I was pretty far on the Joe Exotic side, on his side of the case. I've had several members of his show on um, and and his team. And I mean, I was I, I bought the hat. I was full Joe Exotic team, but since talking to you, uh, I've noticed some inconsistencies in what I've been told, um, and I think that we're going to cover some of those here today, and I, I feel like I've been duped. Um, you've encountered a lot of people, because you're internet famous now, that have felt the same way. Why do you think the show and, and how it covered everything that happened kind of misled a lot of people? We shouldn't feel bad about feeling duped because I felt duped by the producers as well. I was told that we were working on something that was actually going to be about the abuse of big cats, and that's not how it turned out to be. So I I can certainly understand people falling for that narrative, and they did a, a very clever job of editing and splicing things together. And they told a story that, you know, people understand. They had some very basic archetypes for things that are common to people's lives. And it was very easy for people to follow that path. And I heard a guy put it really, really well a couple days ago when he said, you know, I was so cast from the very beginning of Tiger King as being this evil person that when you have been, when somebody is portrayed as the bad guy, nobody wants to find out whether or not that's true. They're just, they're happy to to go along with that. Whereas if there was somebody that they felt sympathetic toward, they might try to go out of their way to find things that were inconsistent. But in the way that they had portrayed me so callously that it just gave people no reason to even care about looking into it. Yeah, I think that's something that we've been encountering a lot. Um, Obviously, in the United States right now, there's a lot of things that are kind of up in the air. There's a lot of tension, a lot of stress. Um, But I think the most important thing that you just said is, is you were villainized, right? They made you out to be a villain. And when there's a villain, it's really easy to take that person and say they're responsible for all of this. And you really don't want that to change because your first notion of, of how things work is the one that you want to stick to. Um, so we talked a little bit about kind of how they misled people with some of the editing. What were some of the things that they did that really made people see your side of things and Big Cat Rescue as if it was also the enemy? 
Well, I think you said something really important there, which is, and your mother has probably said this to you all out there, which is first impressions are what last. And so by creating that first impression, it's been really hard to overcome it. But there's like so many ways in which they cast both me as this villain and the way they cast sanctuaries and zoos as being the same. And they couldn't be any further from the same. I mean, philosophically, we are just so different in that zoos are all about buying and breeding and selling and having public contact in some cases, whereas sanctuaries, legitimate sanctuaries, part of our accreditation is that we do not buy, breed, sell, allow public contact or take the animals off site for, you know, like to malls and rodeos and that sort of thing. So right there at the very beginning, there's this huge difference between sanctuaries and zoos, and yet it seemed like they really went out of their way to try and make it look as if they were all the same. Like everybody who has a tiger in a cage is equally as awful and is um, just de despicable without understanding why sanctuaries have to have cats in cages. It's because of all of these people that are breeding and exploiting and dumping these animals that have nowhere to go. So it started from the very beginning as far as how, um, how the whole thing was so misconstrued to the public. And they didn't bother to go into the things that are really important about why these cats are in cages. You know, they're in cages because people are breeding them and using the cubs as pay-to-play props. They're in cages because any cat, any big cat, born in captivity can never go free. It's not legal. You can't just turn them loose. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions I saw after Tiger King was people were calling me saying they wanted to burn the place to the ground and they wanted to kill the cats. And I'm thinking, I understand why you would hate me because of the way they portrayed me, but why would you want to kill the cats? And they would say it's because they thought that it was so horrible that they're in cages. And we're like, I agree with you. And that's what we are actually trying to do with our federal bill is to right. end the practice of breeding these cats for life in cages. And yet that, you know, that didn't come across in Tiger King at all, that sanctuaries are trying to fix the problem. No, not at all. Uh, I mean, and honestly, my first impressions of you were, okay, she's the lady that doesn't want anybody but her to own cats. And I think that that was a lot of people's first impression because you take a look at how they portrayed Joe, how they portrayed you, Doc Antle, all these other people. And to me, it became like a popularity contest. Like, who's the most entertaining? Who's, you know, the most crazy and, and out there and all these other things? And you were doing things differently. And so to a lot of people, it was like, well, you still own the cats. So why are you arguing against people owning cats when in reality, you don't actually own the cats. It's a sanctuary. It's a completely different setup. Interactions with the public are not physical in nature ever. It is, you know, for you to go and you see the cats and then you can donate. But the main point of what you're doing is actually for it to be a sanctuary, for them to have a place to live because they can't go anywhere else. That was really hard for me to understand in the beginning. Yeah. And, you know, my husband and I got married 16 years ago, 17 years ago. 
And on our honeymoon, we actually wrote out a 20-year plan. And I think they may have even talked about the 20-year plan in Tiger King. But the 20-year the plan was to put ourselves out of business. It was to end all of the abusive things that big cats suffer in captivity so that you don't need sanctuaries, so that places like ours don't have to exist because we don't want to be rescuing animals from horrible situations. There just shouldn't be horrible situations. And yet, I bet you every one of those people that was in Tiger King said the same thing. She just wants to have all the cats. She just wants to be the last person standing. She doesn't want anybody else to have cats. And it's, I don't want any of us, I don't want any zoos holding these magnificent animals hostage against their will. We need to be saving them in the wild. Yeah, and from our conversations that we've had before this, um, I did a lot of research and getting to know you was really cool because, you know, you were portrayed one way and then I meet you and you're completely different. First of all, uh, you're much nicer than I thought you were. You don't have fangs, which was kind of a surprise. Um, but also one thing that I've learned about you is you've backed up everything that you've ever told me. Um, so some of our conversations would go, you know, late. And then later on, I'd get an email from you with articles and dates and times and witnesses and all of this stuff that I think People clam onto the entertaining part, and when they're clammed onto the entertaining part, they don't look at the facts behind it, where you're just straight up spewing facts. Um, and one of the things that we talked about that I wanted to touch on, uh, because I've been in the animal industry for about eight years in terms of conservation, was the fact that zoos are also kind of the problem. And that's that's really tough for me to get my head around because... I've seen firsthand the good things that it does for education. Um, but let's talk a little bit about why zoos can be part of the problem. My understanding was, okay, if they have two tigers and they were bred in captivity and they're not going anywhere, what's the harm? But what is the problem with that kind of thinking? Well, I think there's been a huge shift in the way people think about animals in the past 20 years. And we have finally come to the conclusions, I think mostly from a global perspective, that these animals don't belong in circuses. We should not be forcing them to do stupid pet tricks to amuse us. They shouldn't be killed for their fur or their parts. Um, you know, they, they shouldn't be kept in backyards and basements as ego props. I think all of those are things that we can pretty much agree on. But zoos have been like the final holdout. And the thing that I have always thought was going to be the most difficult because We've all been raised being told that people won't care about animals unless they can see them up close. And in the case of these people that are pimping cubs out, they say people won't care unless they can touch them. And while people may enjoy touching them and they may enjoy going to a zoo and seeing an animal in a cage, what they have found is that none of that really translates into conservation. And in many cases where people have had contact with chimps, they've done a study on this, they haven't done a study on cats, but you would have to think it would be very similar. You've got an endangered species, it's a chimpanzee. When people are seeing those animals either in commercials or dressed up as people or in situations where they can pet them, they actually come away from that thinking that these animals are not endangered and that there's so many of them and they're so common to us that there's no reason to protect them. And I think we do the same thing when we have them so easily accessible in zoo cages. 
as long as people can see there's cats in cages and they hear the zoo owners going on about how they're breeding for conservation, nobody's really thinking about, well, do any of those animals who are being bred actually ever get to go free? Is there any plan to ever take those animals and release them back to the wild? <laughs> there's not. And so for big cats, so, you know, this lie that we have been fed our entire lives about why these animals are in cages in the first place is something that has been really difficult to change public perception about. And I think as long as people can pay $10, $20 and go to the zoo and see a tiger in a cage, they are never going to do the necessary work to protecting habitat because that's far away. It's something they can't get personal satisfaction or enjoyment out of. And it's causing harm if they're spending their money at a zoo and not spending their money in doing the real work that we all need to do as a planet to save our ecosystems and to save our entire <laughs> world. Right. These animals in the places where they belong because they serve such an important role in nature. Yeah. And I think something that you mentioned that like strikes a chord with me is I was looking last week at the endangered species list and then the extinction list. And I remember last year I went to an aquarium and saw this turtle and I thought it looked so cool and it was kind of like funny looking. And I was like, that's, that's amazing that like I can come here and see this animal. And then last week I was doing research on it cause I just thought of it again and it's extinct in the wild. Wow. And that to me was like the, that's the perfect example of what you were just talking about. I saw it in the aquarium and I was like, this is readily available. I've seen it. It's at this aquarium, this aquarium and this aquarium. So it's fine. It's it's definitely still in the wild. Like we wouldn't have them in here if we didn't have them in the wild. All of that thought process goes through your head and tells you that it's totally OK. And then last week, I'm like, they don't exist in the wild anymore. They are only owned by zoos and other institutions like aquariums. And that kind of hurt because I was like, what's what's the point of having it if we can only look at it in a place that's unnatural, if we can only see it in places and it only exists in places where I have to go pay to see it or it, I have to go pay for it to keep its existence there. Um, and it's it was kind of shocking. It, it was kind of a real wake up call because it's not the same thing. That turtle that I saw in the aquarium, you know, like a year ago is not the same thing as this species in the wild continuing to survive. It just doesn't, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, and the genetic makeup too is something that you and I have discussed, but talk to me a little bit about why the breeding programs in zoos and things like that. Why can't these tigers be released and, and why are they different than tigers that you would see in the wild? Well, there's, there's two reasons for that, but First, I'd like to kind of piggyback on what you just said in that you were looking at the endangered species list and the extinction list. And for 200 years, we've been told that having these animals as a backup arc is going to save them from extinction. And yet during that 200 years, we have driven almost all of them right to the edge of extinction. So it didn't serve the purpose that we were told it was going to serve. And we can't do we can't move fast enough to save them in the wild. And I think the very first thing that we have to do is stop the private possession. So at, back to your question, your question was kind of twofold because there are roadside zoos, like the kind of places that you saw in Tiger King, and then you've got your big AZA accredited zoos. 
So the big accredited zoos, when they breed endangered species, they have something called the Species Survival Plan. And they all work as a network around the world with other AZA accredited zoos to try and make sure that when they do breed these animals, they are um, using, they're not inbreeding and that they're using the most unrelated of those creatures within the same species or subspecies to breed to each other so that they will be healthy and viable. Whereas the exact opposite happens in these backyard zoos because what they wanna do is produce the color morphs that people go gaga over. People wanna see white tigers or the strawberry tigers or ligers, which is a cross between a lion and a tiger. People love things that are novel and they don't think about whether or not that's a good thing <laughs> for the animal. And it's not. In the case of ligers, they, don't, they have a gene that causes gigantism. And so in a lot of them, not all of them, we had a liker that lived to be 17 because she didn't suffer from gigantism. She was the same size as a regular lion or tiger. But typically what happens with the liker is they lack that gene that stops you growing when you get to be like 17, 18 years old. For people, for cats, you know, they'd be like five. And they just grow it until it kills them. And so that's a really bad thing to breed into an animal. And with the white tigers, the way they get those white coats and those strawberry coats is by purposely inbreeding to create that white color morph. And so they are doing the exact opposite of what the species survival plans are suggesting for actual conservation. But in both cases, there are no plans, and I don't think ever could be any plans, to take a captive-born big cat, lion or tiger or leopard, and turn that cat loose in the wild because of a couple of things. One is their mothers teach them for years how to be who they are, and we can't possibly mimic that in captivity. At Big Cat Rescue, we do that for native bobcats, but if a 25-pound bobcat gets in trouble with a person after we set them free because we screwed up and imprinted on them too much, they're not gonna kill anybody. A lion or a tiger is. And the biggest problem that it causes for the lions and tigers themselves are, if you were to release an animal that was imprinted and they find they can't hunt because their mother didn't teach them how, they're gonna go after the easy prey, which might be your child at a bus stop or cattle, you know, people's livestock. And whenever a big cat does take livestock, people take retribution against that animal. And they take it against the first one they see, which may not be the problem animal. And so you end up killing even more animals in the environment because people just, you know, they assume that if they think some lion took their cow, that it's the lion that's standing in front of them. And that may not be the case. So there's just so many reasons why it would never be possible, I don't think, to release a big cat back into the wild. So what is the purpose of having them in cages? I do agree that people need to see them in order to care about them. And so that's why we've been pushing for zoos to adopt a model of virtual reality. And I think that's gonna be what saves the big cats. And it's been a big part of what we're working at on at the sanctuary is to try and create experiences where, I just watched a new one that we put up today. It was called Curious About Caracals and a caracal is a little 30 pound desert lynx. And so mm -hmm. put the camera in the cage and the cat comes like right up to the camera and it's sniffing and it's eating in front of the camera and you get this very up close view of the cat. We work with a lot of in situ partners around the world 
and donate over $100,000 every year to conservation projects for cats around the world. So what we did last year was we outfitted them with the 3D 180 cameras so that when they're out there doing their work in the wild, they can actually capture those cats in the wild with, in their case, because the the range on those cameras isn't that far. It's probably only going to be things like when they're collaring a cat or doing something like that, that it would ever be close enough to actually do this. But right. as we push that technology forward, I can see just like we have trail cams now where people see all kinds of animals coming into their yard or people have ring doorbells and they're seeing that there's all kinds of animals in their neighborhoods. <laughs> these things will be internet streaming placed in places where these animals actually live in the wild. And when you get home at night, you just put on your headset and you go straight to Mongolia or to Brazil or to wherever. Right. And you're seeing these animals in the wild in real time, doing what they do, which is far more educational than anything you're ever going to see a cat doing in a cage. So I think that's the way of the future. And that future won't happen as long as we take the easy way out and just hold cats captive. Sure. Yeah, I think you made a lot of good points. And, um, you know, we've talked about different ways to have people interact with animals without actually having them interact with animals. I think VR is getting to a place now where you can do some of these things and actually see like, oh, like you've been able to interact with something or see something up close that you never would. Um, and I think the other thing, too, is any, you know, registered zoo that's actually functioning as they're intended to, you know, even with all the negative things, most of the time they don't allow for a whole lot of interaction. It's just you looking at it and it's like in the back or, or hiding or whatever. So being able to take VR and show you up close exactly what they look like. You can see the hairs on their face, things like that, their whiskers. I think that's probably more impactful than just like, oh yeah, we have like, you know, five tigers, they're in that enclosure. And like, maybe if you're lucky and it's warm out and all these conditions are right, you might get to see it like a little bit 500 feet away. I, I just think that could be so much more um, impactful. But yeah, go ahead. Well, one of the big problems that good zoos, I mean, I use that term loosely because I don't believe any cat belongs in a zoo or any kind of cage, but the trouble they have is if they give the animal sufficient space to do what it wants to do, which is stay away from people, then nobody's ever going to see that animal. And they're always having to wrestle between doing what's right for the animal and doing what the customer wants, which is to see the animal up close. And they're never going to reach a happy medium there because the cats don't want to be seen by people. They will go right. as far away from people as they possibly can. Yeah. So we talked about cages a little bit. Um, in the show, I noticed that your cages look very similar to Joe's. I was a little confused because you talked in the show about how like the cage size matters and things like that. Joe's cages were not super large. And then they go and show your cages. And I was also like, well, those aren't very large either. Like, what's what's the holdup? So is is there some other truth behind that? Are they actually like that small? What are your cages look like? Well, I knew that my cages were a lot larger than Joe's because of aerial videos that I had seen. But now that we have actually been given the GW Zoo and I've been able to walk the grounds and see the areas that you never get to see in videos, most of the cages and Keep in mind, I think at his peak, he said he had 400 tigers on the facility. And most of those cages were about 10 feet by 16 feet, maybe the larger ones 20 feet by 16 feet. 
And then if you were to calculate that, that's like, what, 160 to 300 square feet per cat. And my guess is those double-sized cages were probably for a mating pair. So it's probably more like 160 square feet per cat. Our very smallest cage for a 30-pound bobcat compared to like a 500-pound tiger, a 30-pound bobcat at Big Cat Rescue, the very smallest cage for as far back as I can remember, like back in, back to the end of the 90s, it's always been at least 1,200 square feet per cat. Wow. And they have all of that space to themselves unless they really like the cats that they live with. In most cases, cats are solitary. They don't want to share space. And even in the cases where our cats do share space, they're all separated at feeding time because they will kill each other over food. Our tiger enclosures, the very smallest that we've ever had for a tiger or a lion or a leopard or a jaguar was 1,800 square feet. And wow. most of our cats are living somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 to 5,000 square feet. Because, you know, at our peak, we had 200 cats with all of the fur farm rescues that we've done. But over the years, sure. cats have died out. We're down to about 52 cats. So we okay. still have 200 cages, but only 52 cats. And so we've joined the cages together so they have a lot more space. But, yeah, I mean, and people who saw Tiger King only saw our cats in their feeding lockouts. And I find that just bizarre. I, I can't even tell you how bizarre I find that because Joe Exotic had taken a helicopter over the sanctuary and had actually videotaped how huge our cages were and had shown that on his site. The people from, the producers from Tiger King had been here and they had seen our cages and they knew how huge they were. They knew those were right. feeding lockouts. And every day we go live on Facebook and on YouTube and people, anybody can come to our site and see how huge our cages are. And yet they wanted to portray that, it looked like to me, as us being even worse <laughs> than these little nasty zoos in, as far as the size of the cages. That was just... That's was crazy. So the feeding lockout, that's where you're putting them so that they can eat. And like you said, so that they don't kill each other because they need to be kind of separated, smaller area when they eat. But to me, that's really telling about what the point of this show was. It was not, you know, what you were told, like the blackfish of tigers and talking about conservation, things like that. If they're only showing them in their smallest enclosures and that's only for eating, that's clearly pushing some sort of an agenda. And I think the agenda was that there was more complexity to the story than there actually was. Well, it's interesting you should say that because this person that did a recent review of that was saying the reason why he thought they had tried to make everybody who had a tiger in a cage look so wretched was because that's an easy story to tell, whereas there's a lot of nuance <laughs> when you start getting into all of the different parameters of what's going on. And when right. I say feeding lockout, it's not that the cats are locked in there while they're feeding. We actually lock them out of that box so that we can safely put the food in, and then we open it to let them in. So when I say we separate cats, that means that those cats have at least at the very least, 2,400 square feet. So one cat will be over in 1,200 square feet, the other cat will be over in 1,200 square feet, and then each of those would have a feeding box that we would shut, right. put the food in, and then open the doors. So it's not oh like they're goodness. ever being locked in that little box. It's it's crazy to me still, like going back and rewatching it, how many things they portrayed differently than now that I've seen the transcripts, I've seen the evidence, things like that, how different it actually is from what they tried to show you. 
So I do want to touch a little bit on your relationship with Joe, just because that was honestly the the highlight of the show for most people was the back and forth and the rivalry. He's showing up to Big Cat Rescue. He's in like a crazy suit. He was talking about, you know, a bunny that you guys had for food. Just craziness constantly. The entire show was your rivalry. When did you guys actually meet and like how how much interaction have you had? Well, it's interesting because you 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 named all of those different crazy interactions, and yet I'm not in any of those because I didn't do any of that stuff. I didn't go and do weird things to him or say even awful things about him. And as much as the producers tried to get me to say something that they could then paint into a feud, I kept telling them it's not about Joe. It's about the issues. It's about the fact that these cats are dying in the wild and we need to save them and they, you know, all of the stuff that you and I just talked about. And they just kept coming back to, well, you know, don't you want to say something about his mullet or don't you want to say something about his singing or don't you want, and it's like, no. Trying to bait you. Not any of this. And since I wouldn't do that, I think the only thing they could do was try to then make it look like I was just such an evil person that, of course, I drove him to madness. And, of course, he just couldn't help himself, you know. And I've never had a conversation with Joe. We've never spoken to each other. So to paint this. Wait, you guys have never you guys have never talked and you've never like met or anything like that? Well, I. I've been in the room with him four times total. Okay. First time was during a deposition. We had to sue him because he was using our name and he was calling. Yep, I remember big, that. Big Cat Rescue Entertainment. So we had to make him stop doing that because people thought we were doing cut petting. They thought it was us. And so I saw him during the deposition, but I didn't speak to him there. My husband did, and they were very cordial with each other, but I didn't say anything. And then um, I saw him at a bankruptcy hearing because as soon as he gave us, in fact, one of the things people don't realize is it wasn't that I went to court and I won against him. I went to court and he realized I had won against him. And so he said, you know what, I'll give her, I think it was like a million two or a million one and just be done with this. And so he consented to that judgment. Well, when you consent to a judgment, you can't appeal it. And then he thought, I think, that he could just go out and file bankruptcy and you can't, well, you can do that. But in his case, they wouldn't let him do that. And so I saw him at one of the bankruptcy hearings. But again, it was just the attorneys talking to him, not me. And then I saw him at the murder for hire trial and I saw him um, at the sentencing. And so those were the only times I've ever even seen him in person. And yet this whole premise was that there was this huge, bitter rivalry where we were just at each other. And it wasn't the case. I've always been focused on the issues. He's always been trying to divert attention away from the issues. Yeah, I think that that's crazy for people to learn, too, because you watch it and you're like, oh, they're at each other's throats all the time. When really, if you think about it, the only clips that you see of the two of you talking about each other, it's usually just Joe and he's talking about you and he's got this campaign against you. But I think the whole thing started when you started uh, a website and you were trying to put people on this most wanted list in terms of uh, cub petters and, and abusers and sellers and things like that. Tell me about that and how you actually got wind of Joe and like learned who he was. 
So back before Facebook, if any of your people remember before Facebook, there were a lot of places <laughs> that were trying to be Facebook. There was MySpace, and then there were a lot of competitors trying to figure out this Facebook-type thing. And I don't remember the name of it, but there was one very similar one that I used. And it was like Facebook, where you would post something, and other people could post, and you could have groups. And people would ask me all the time about, you know, they'd say, I saw this cub petting thing at the mall. I think it was horrible. And so I'd ask them, well, put the pictures up there and put whatever information you have there. And so all these people were posting all this information. And then this Facebook competitor didn't make it. And so I took all of those posts, all of that information, all of the USDA reports, um, everything, and organized it into a website. And the website was called 911 Animal Abuse. And so the reason for doing that is because so many people would still contact me and say, what do you know about this place? What do you know about this place? And so I just put everything I knew about a particular place on a page together. And I noticed one day that there were a lot of these people that were doing cub petting at the malls in the Midwest. And they had all different kinds of names. Like every week they had a different name on a banner, but it was the same cages and it was the same people. And then I was like, you know, Joe's kind of hard to miss running around in leather pants and his handcuffs and gun and all of that. And right. it's like, who is this guy that is always at these things? And then I realized who he was. And so when I put it all together, it, it turned out that there were 21 different operations that were all Joe. And the reason that people would do things like that is to hide their bad reports, the things that USDA had cited them for. And he had had over like 300 citations back in the 90s. Oh, so, my goodness. Yeah. So in an effort to uh, distance themselves from the things that they had been cited for, they just go out under a different banner. So that was the first time that there was a page on Joe. It turned out I didn't know it until, gosh, 2019 was the first that I found out that I had actually commented on a lion cub that was born at his facility. And I didn't know at the time who he was or anything, but that was in 2004, mm -hmm. where a reporter came to me and said, this lion cub was born deformed at this sanctuary, and we want to know what you think about it. And I said, well, sanctuaries don't breed. It can't be a sanctuary. And that turned out to be Joe. And apparently that's when I came up on Joe's radar and when he started trash-talking me. And, and then years later, you figure out that he's the one behind all this cub petting at all these different malls and changing his name. And you've already had a feud. You didn't even know it, but there was already a feud established <laughs> between the two of you. Yeah, I had no idea. It wasn't oh until goodness. I think Wondery came out with a podcast in 2019 and the guy who was doing it referred me to the article. And I was like, well, I'll be thanked because I thought I first heard about him in like 2009. So apparently it was 2004. Oh my goodness. So I've also, I've looked at um, everything in terms of the transcripts, the evidence, all of this stuff from your court cases. Something that surprised me about you and what I knew you as and who you were from the show was you've never sued him for harassment or anything like that, which to me is like a no brainer. He, you know, did all of these things. He called you all of these awful names he badmouthed you on the internet and went as far as to dress something up in your likeness and shoot it. He exploded things up in your likeness. You've never sued him for any form of harassment. And that to me is just mind boggling. Why not go after him on things that you could probably get him on and, and maybe even earlier than anything else if he's doing it and he's, you know, dead wrong? 
You know, the only thing that we wanted him to do initially was stop using our name. If he'd just stop using our name, I didn't care what he was saying about me. I mean, it's no wonder that these people that make their living abusing big cats hate me because I'm out there talking about why people shouldn't be supporting that kind of an industry. But, you know, that was all that we sought out to do in the course of our, our lawsuit. And then we ended up having to um, sue him for copyright infringement on some photos that he was using because he was posting them and taking them out of um, context. And so people, you know, he, and you mentioned there was a photo of uh, some volunteers on the back of a golf cart holding a rabbit, and or maybe a couple rabbits, and the rabbits had blood on their nose, and the volunteers were smiling. And the reason for that is back then when that picture was taken, we couldn't afford to give our cats whole prey. Now our cats get whole prey twice a week, but Back then, it was like a really special treat when your favorite cat got a whole rat or a whole rabbit. And sure. the way we get those animals is from the breeders that breed for the snake industry. Apparently, mm -hmm. a lot of people feed rats and rabbits to their snakes. And the way they kill the animals is they um, put them to sleep, and that gas is what causes those little capillaries in their nose to bleed after they're dead. Oh, so it looks like dead. something more gruesome than it is. Well, yeah, Joe was saying that we bashed these rabbits in the head and that our people were just these bloodthirsty, awful people that enjoyed the death of the animal. And nothing could be further from the truth. Our people love all animals, and we really hate that our cats eat other animals. And it's another reason why none of us want to be here. We don't want there to have to be animals who are being fed to our cats. There shouldn't be cats in captivity to even have to make that decision. But right. this was the nature of this picture. And so Joe was posting it everywhere, saying horrible things about us. And so we had to make him stop. And so we had the picture copyright protected and made him stop. So those were the only two things that we ever sued him about. Wow. Yeah, because to me, if somebody was harassing me that often and they were actually going to my site and doing these awful things and, you know, being awful about me on the Internet, spreading lies, I that the first thing I would do is is sue, but you guys focused on the animal aspects and all you wanted to do was stop him from talking about the things that you wanted protected using your your photos, using your name, your likeness, things like that. And if you look at the logo that he has for or had for Big Cat Rescue Entertainment, it it's your logo. It's the exact same thing. Um but you actually did have an interaction with Joe that I wanted to talk about, or, or rather your husband did, um, when the two exchanged words when they were getting water at one of these hearings. So what did he say to your husband and, and how did, I don't, I still don't understand it, but what did he say to your husband? Well, before I go there, I just realized that yeah. I saw Joe on one other occasion and it just came to me as you were speaking. Sorry, I was thinking about something else, but no, go um, for it. I was at a hearing in Ohio after Terry Thompson had turned loose all of those lions and tigers and yes. other bears and everything. Um, he had turned them loose and committed suicide. And so I was in Ohio speaking up for a law that would ban the private possession of these animals. And I was there with the head of the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, who is a woman about this tall. I mean, tiny, tiny little frail little old lady, probably has 10 years on me. And Joe and his camera crew because everywhere joe goes he's got this huge crew of people around him with cameras 
all comes barreling in on her and caught her from behind. And so I stepped up onto the chair to go toward him to get between him and her. So I did actually see him there, but I didn't say anything to him then either. He just saw, I think, blood in my eyes and ran. But as far (laughs) as the conversation between my husband, if you saw some, I don't know how much of these things are still available online or how much were actually in the transcript evidence because I I didn't bother to look at those when I sent them to you because I had already seen them. But there were an awful lot of crude sexual photos and comments that Joe had made about me, very personal kinds of things. And during the deposition, the attorney was asking Joe one after the other, did you post this? Did you post this? And he was like, yes, yes, yes. And so at a break, my husband and Joe went to go get a bottle of water and ended up there at the table together. And Joe turns to my husband and he said, nothing personal. And he just could not believe that he was saying there was nothing personal when it was like as personal as you could possibly be towards some other man's wife. I, I still, I've never gotten over that since, since I heard about that because you have somebody who's harassing you, shooting your likeness on, on a blow up doll, doing all of these awful things. And the first thing, the only thing, and the first thing that he says to your husband when he sees him is it's nothing personal. Like it's, it's fine. I, I, I still can't get over that. That's, that's insanely ridiculous. And it shows to me a lack of, I don't know if it's a lack of understanding of how hurtful those things are, because you would think like naturally, if you're doing all that to some person, it's going to be hurtful, but maybe a lack of understanding of like being over the line, like, like you've crossed it. So I don't know. I still think that that's just the craziest thing that I've ever heard. (laughs) So bizarre. It's nuts. So we do have to talk about a couple of other things, questions that people are going to want me to ask you. And if they're not included, then this would not be an interview with Carol Baskin. This wouldn't be cats out of the bag. So there was a rumor started about you uh, a long time ago, and it was continued in the show and, and really drummed up. And that was the rumor that you had killed your husband and you had fed him to the tigers. So talk to me about when you first saw that, do you think that the show hyped it up for more drama? And, and did you kill your husband? No, of course not. I was the only person in my husband's life who was actually trying to protect him. He had some form of dementia. I don't know what was going on. I thought he had Alzheimer's. And I was taking him to different doctors and psychiatrists trying to have him evaluate it. What they had found was that he was bipolar and they sent him in for an MRI and then that was in June. And then in August, I had an appointment with an Alzheimer's specialist. And so we were trying to hone in on what was happening because he was forgetting things. He was, I mean, he was always a little strange, but he was really, really strange doing things like he, he wouldn't allow us to flush the toilets in the house and we live on a septic tank. So it's not like there's a big water bill. Um, <laughs> there's not, you know, right. we well. so that wasn't the issue. And then I found that when I would go out with him looking at property, he 
would need to use the bathroom and he'd go around behind the building, behind the dumpster and crap on the ground. And I'd say, why didn't, you know, we stopped here because this is a restroom that I know is clean because I was in real estate. I knew where every clean restroom in the whole city is. And he'd say, oh, I didn't want to use that restroom. And it was, you know, things like that was starting to show me that there was something really weird going on. And then one of the people that was in Tiger King, Wendell Williams, was somebody that was always hitting Don up for money. And I mean, at one point he got Don to give him $60,000 with no collateral at all. And Ann and I, Ann McQueen from the show, talked about it and we were like, he's just making crazy decisions. He's not being protected in any of these things. And so Ann actually had Don sign a, a contract with her that if he ever gave Wendell Williams any more money without going by, you know, going through her first, that he would owe her $10,000 just for going around him or going around right. him. And so she, I believe, knew that there was something desperately wrong because everybody talks about how cheap he was, and he was, but he was just doing bizarre things like that. And so Wendell came to him one day and said, um, remember that $2,000 you owe me? And Don always carried huge wads of cash, and so he peels off $2,000 and gives it to Wendell. Just a few minutes later, Wendell doesn't see me, but I see them, and Wendell says, hey, Don, remember that $2,000 she owed me? And Don's like, yeah, I forgot, and he peels off another 2000 and gives it to oh Wendell. Oh, my goodness. And so I, I confronted them, and that's, of course, why Wendell hates me, because I caught him, and these people that were taking advantage of my husband were doing everything they could to try and scare him and tell him not to go to the doctors. I was trying to take him, you know, take away his agency and have him locked up because he was mentally deranged. And, you know, I just wanted to protect him because he was doing crazy things. He would go in the cages with the cats. I had to put locks on all of the cages. Back then, we didn't have locks back in the early 90s, but I put locks on all of the cages. And then I gave him a huge wad of keys. So they didn't go to any of those locks. So that we would see him out there, you know, screwing around and then be able to divert his attention and get him to go do something else. And that worked for a while. And then he just started taking bolt cutters and cutting holes in the sides of the cages and cats were getting loose. He took a leopard with him to go yard sailing and left the windows down in the van and the cat's running loose in the neighborhood. And I mean, he was just totally out of control. And yet everybody was trying to keep me from getting him the help that he needed. And so that's why I I just, I was so disappointed with the kinds of things that they started saying after he disappeared. When he first disappeared, the the daughters from a previous marriage who had been estranged from him for over a year. Mm -hmm. Um, They came in and had Anne appointed as the conservator. And at the hearing, they told the judge the reason that they couldn't tell the wife about the hearing was because they didn't know where I lived. We'd been living in the same place for six years. They all knew where I lived, but I wasn't invited (laughs) because they wanted to take over the entire estate. So as soon as I found out about that, I went down, I got it set aside. I was appointed the conservator and I offered to give them half of everything and they didn't want that. They wanted everything. And so we fought about it for a while and they tried to say that the documents that I had were forged. And so I brought in not one, not two, but three expert handwriting firms had them use every single tool that was available to them on every single one of the originals, 
all of the originals that they use, like the marriage certificate people love to talk about so much. They saw right. the original of that. And they all came to exactly the same conclusion. It was Don's signature on everything. And these were authentic documents. And so once the girls saw that, they agreed, well, okay, we'll split the uh, estate with you. And so that was in 1998 that we came mm -hmm. to an agreement on how things would be split. And then it was September of 98 that we came to that agreement. And in December of 98, they're in People Magazine and Dateline and Hard Copy saying that I killed my husband and fed him to the tigers. And, you know, not coming right out and saying that, but alluding to that. And I thought... Right. I have been so generous to these people that I didn't know if Dom was going to walk back in any day and he would have been madder than a hornet because he didn't want his kids to get anything. And here I was giving them so much. So I was taking a huge risk by doing that. But I felt like they were his children and it was important for him to take care of them. Right. And that's not at all what was portrayed in Tiger King. And yet no. the producers of Tiger King had access to every bit of that documentation that now you have seen and the whole world has seen because I've put it out there on the Internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, so first of all, that to me is really heartbreaking to now understand this side of the story. Um, and, and like you alluded to, I, I've seen all of the documents. I've gone over them. There's not there's no complexity there. It's it's pretty clear cut that what was happening was he was losing his faculties. Um, you know, he was not understanding where he was and what was happening and things like that. And you were trying to work with him to get that back. All of a sudden he disappears and you're left with the sanctuary, all these bills and, and people are coming after the money left and right, trying to cut you out of things and saying that you're doing things. I honestly, my heart breaks for you because to be in that situation with your spouse initially that things are not going right and you see that and you, you're trying to work towards something that's going to be better and, and better solutions. And then people are just coming in and not caring about him as a person or his human dignity, but instead just looking at the money and saying, okay, this is an easy target. I need to get in and get out while I can. Um, that's absolutely awful. And I think the show really played that up. They didn't do anything to quell any of that. Um, you know, and I think the majority of people still on the internet think that you killed your husband. I saw an article yesterday that said that you were probably the most hated person on the internet in 2020. That's not something that I think I would deal with very easily. You've got these rumors spreading about you killing your husband, people on the internet either are making fun of you incessantly or they're saying that you're some evil person. And honestly, I commend you for being able to handle all this stuff because I don't know that I would be able to uh, as well as you have. I mean, that's, that's a tragic story. I have a good philosophy on life that enables me to cope with that. And it is that I really believe no matter how horrible something is, that it all happens for the good and that ultimately we all are learning and growing and becoming more enlightened from the adversity that we experience. I don't think we learn anything from the easy days in our lives, but we sure learn a lot from the hard things. And so I can only hope that with every bitter um, 
memory and experience that it is a growing experience and a way to I think be forgiving of people because they just don't know and they they don't have a reason to care enough to even bother to look. <laughs> the evidence right. is pretty obvious out there. It's in the public record. It's always been there. But right. people don't care enough to do that. They just they have an archetype in their head. In fact, I, I saw a similar thing to what you were talking about, where it was saying that I am more hated by divorced women than I am by the general population. Well, it's because there's an archetype there that was in Tiger King of here's this gold digger, beautiful woman, steals this man away from his loving family and takes him for all he's got. I mean, that was their narrative. And right. the truth of it was Don had never earned more than $17,000 before I met him. He had, I think, two or maybe three properties when I met him that were worth a total of $113,000. And I was the person who built our real estate business. But I did that for years, letting him take the lead and him be the person that, you know, he took all of the glory for it and he loved it and I loved him. And so I wanted people to think he was successful. And if you listen to his secretary and to his daughters, you know, they don't seem to understand how he made the money. They just said things like, he had a Midas <laughs> touch. He was a golden goose. It was like, there, there was always right. something coming, but we don't know how he did it. And it's like, well, when have you ever heard that with any successful that. entrepreneur? Yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness. And you were recently on Dancing with the Stars, which that's awesome. That's very cool. Um, but I noticed that there was an ad that they ran, the Daughters of Don, during uh, one of the airings of Dancing with the Stars. Where did that come from? That that must have been like crazy out of left field for you. You know, when we watched Tiger King, my attorney from back in the day, back in the 90s that handled the conservatorship, he called me up and he said, I cannot believe the things they said about you because you were so kind to them and so gracious to them. How could they possibly have turned it into what they were saying there? And I think I think that they have been taken advantage of both by the producers of Tiger King and by the people who were bringing a case for them because there's no case to be brought. And I think it was all about publicity that they were right. riding the coattails of Tiger King and then trying to capitalize off of Dancing with the Stars. But I don't think that I don't think that Don's daughter's um, best interests were ever being taken care of by the people who claim to be representing them. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, a lot of this story that revolves around Tiger King is that people were being taken advantage of. Um, and I think you're certainly one of the figures that uh, they really pulled a fast one on you with this whole we're going to talk about tigers in cages and how this is wrong and, and things like that. And they touched on that, but it was more about, for them, the entertainment side of things. Um, and I think also another thing that they really pushed was that there's a chance that Joe is innocent and, and things like that. Um, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to instruct people uh, that listen to this episode on how to get to those documents because they are public record. Um, so look for that in the show notes as well. But I've been through all of it, and it took me maybe 35 minutes to find the evidence surrounding it, 
um, why he was convicted of the things that he was, and the fact that his lawyer really did not have any good case around why he did a lot of the things that he did. So now looking back on it, there were several different plots to have you murdered that started with Joe. That's not something that I realized through the show. The show talks about James Gerritsen working with some people and Jeff Lowe working with some people um, and Alan Glover, but there were actually ones way before that and way before the show. So when did you first start getting death threats that were related to Joe and, and what was the nature of those? So the first time I remember Joe posting things about me were things like um, he would dress up a, a dummy with BCR on the Big Cat Rescue on the chest and another one with PETA on the chest. And then he hung these from rafters and shot them with bow and arrows and um, he pointed guns at them and posted these kinds of things on Facebook. And there were a lot of these <laughs> starting like around 2009, 2010. And what he would do in the comments and when he was talking to people on his little live YouTube thing that he did was to say that she's Carol's coming after your animals and she's going to take away your pets and it's, you know, it's all her fault. And we have to stop her. And he would actually tell people, you need to rape her. You need to break her legs. You need to teach her a lesson. You need to put a bullet between her eyes. And he just hammered this home day in and day out while dehumanizing me on the one side with all of these gross photos that he would put my face on and things like that, trying to make me this non-human so that he could rile up these pretty unstable exotic animal owners to, to um, carry out his desire to see me dead. And he tried that for a long time and went at it for a long time. But in 20, I think it was 2015, a woman called me and she said her name was Jackie Thompson and that her husband was Mark Thompson. And you saw Mark Thompson in Tiger King. Her story to me was that Joe had gone to her husband because he was a sharpshooter in the military and asked him if he would kill me for a fee and that her husband agreed to do it. But then Joe shot that doll in the head on one of his shows, the video that you were talking about earlier. And mm -hmm. she said that once Mark saw him do that, he said, well, we can't do it now because they're going to know it's us. You know, you kind of blew our opportunity there. Now in Tiger King, Mark says, oh, no, you know, I was never going to do it. And I never I never agreed to do it. So who knows which one of them is telling the truth? I don't have any way to know. But for that to be the only thing that stopped him was that, oh, wait, hold on, I might get caught here. I might, you you were too uh, obvious about what our plans were, and I don't, I don't want to get caught. I'm, that's That's got to be pretty scary. And, and who was he in the show, for reference? Um, he only appears briefly. He does, his name does show up in the, you know, like when they put the name over at the bottom part of the screen, mm -hmm. they call him Mark Thompson. He was the person that Joe had hired as a security guard, so you'll see him in a lot of the film in that way. But, you know, I got that secondhand from his wife. So I don't know that that was, you know, really what he said. And right. I can't attribute that to him without him, you know, being able to speak for himself. But sure. what makes me think that it's true is within a year or so, another person, Ashley Webster, called me and she said, I was talking to Joe and he offered me $3,000. I think it was 3000 um, 
He loves that number. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm just lucky it wasn't a six-pack and a baggie of blow. And so she said, you know, she couldn't believe that he was serious about wanting to hire her to kill me. And he was, she said, serious. And she felt like I should know that my life was in danger. And so, you know, every time that somebody told me that there was something this specific or when things happened at the sanctuary, like we'd find bullet holes in the signs or our signs had been defaced right after Joe had been here doing his bunny suit protest, I would, I went to the sheriff's department and said, you know, I want to get a restraining order against this guy because he's just completely out of control and he's trying to get these people to kill me. And they said that unless he had actually struck me twice, I couldn't get a restraining order. So I was Wait, So to get a restraining order, this was in uh, in Florida to get a restraining order. Yeah. He would have to have had hit you, made contact twice. That's what I was told. So... And- See, that's a big problem for me, because if I'm getting a restraining order against someone and I've looked into that process before, um, it's not as restrictive in Maryland, I don't believe. Why does that person have to have any contact with you before that point? That's kind of that's ridiculous, because at that point, if it's the first time and they decide, well, this is the time they're right here, I'm going to kill them, then it's already too late. You would think the purpose of a restraining order is to keep dangerous people away from you before they can harm you, not after they've already harmed you twice. I mean, so so we've got uh, the initial one, and then we've got he tried to pay somebody another $3,000 to hurt you. And then what happened after that? There was, there was some then mention of call. a I bigger plot. <laughs> I got another call from, I think this one was again from this Jackie Thompson, but I couldn't swear to it. And what she said was they had all been at a party where um, there was Joe, Doc Antle, a guy named Michael Sandlin, who was not in Tiger King, but he had a tiger at a truck stop in Louisiana. And some of these other people, John Finley and some of the other people that Joe hangs around with. And the discussion at their party was how they were going to kill me. And so... Joe said that what he wanted to do was have somebody inject me with, come onto the sanctuary grounds, inject me with ketamine. And then there was a woman by the name of Chris Hansen who said that she had 14 acres here in Bartow, which is about an hour away from where I live. And it backs up to a swamp. And she said we could take her out in the swamp, cut her up into pieces, feed her the gators. Nobody would ever see her again. And Joe said, no, we want somebody to find the body because we want her family to back off. And so... You know, when I heard that, every time any of these happened, I reported it to the police. I reported it to the FBI. I reported it to the sheriff in in uh, Garvin County in Oklahoma. And nobody did anything until the situation that you guys actually saw in Tiger King, which was when James Garrison was putting a, uh, uh, what do they call it, like an undercover FBI agent in place of the hitman. So at that point, Joe had already hired Alan Clover to kill me and had paid him $3,000 to kill me. And the FBI did not know that he had already paid Glover and they thought that Glover was at the the sanctuary, at the zoo, at the GW Zoo. What they didn't realize was that Glover had managed to slip through the cracks and go to South Carolina 
And a lot of people have been trying to say since then that Glover never intended to come to Florida to kill me. But what they don't know, and I don't know if it was in the transcripts or not, but <laughs> Alan Glover was a felon and he couldn't be caught with a gun. And so he told Joe that his good knife was in South Carolina and he wanted to go to South Carolina to get his knife so that he could kill me with his knife. And that was why he went to South Carolina. It wasn't that he just went home. <laughs> He was going to get his big hunting knife so that he could cut off my head. And it, it just, <laughs> at any rate, he had uh, managed to uh, slip oh my through gosh. their hands. And they didn't know he had slipped through their hands. So they thought, we're watching the zoo every day. We're going to make sure he's not getting out of here. And we'll put a fake hitman in place. We'll get Joe to hire this FBI agent, which Joe did. And that's why there were two murder-for-hire charges. One was Alan Glover, who they then found out in June or July the next year that he was actually in the wind this whole time and could have been still on a mission to come and kill me. And there were a lot of texts back and forth between him and Joe showing that Joe was trying to work both the FBI agent and Glover. Uh, just just stunned and disappointed, honestly. I mean... In, in all the systems that we have and all the reports that you made, nothing was done. But even further than that, once they finally did like start to do something and catch wind of some of this stuff, they let the guy go. He very well could have come and, and tried to kill you. I, well, I have never met anyone that has had that many death threats against them. But, but also, certainly, not that many death threats and nothing is done. And even... Negative is done. They they let the guy go. He almost he could have gotten to you. I mean, how do you how did you during this time when you knew that these things were going on? Joe was hiring people to try and come kill you. How did you cope with that? I don't think I'd be able to sleep. Even though I knew, you know, for my husband, it was really eye opening to him when the FBI called him and said, we know there's an imminent threat. This was when they first were trying to put the FBI agent in play to make sure that Glover couldn't come here. And they contacted my husband and said, she's under imminent threat, try to keep her under wraps. And for him, you know, that's hard because I just, I can't be caged up. I've just, I've got to be able to do the work that I do. And right. so for him, I think it was a lot harder than it was for me. But these threats that I just, all of these threats that I just detailed from Joe, these were just some of the threats that I've been living with for the last 20 years. The guy who was in Tiger King, the guy with the long white beard, um, Dennis Hill, he was the mm -hmm. first person who ever threatened to kill me. He said that he knew a guy in Miami who had a history of being able to do this kind of thing. And if I didn't lay off and stop um, exposing these backyard breeding and the cub petting and all of that, that he was going to have this guy kill me. Well, he didn't call the guy by name, but it just turns out that Mario Tabro is also from Tiger King and from right. Miami and had been sentenced to 100 years in prison and had gotten out with 12 years by turning state's evidence. So I'm pretty sure that that's who he was talking about. And then... I mean, wow. I have to go to hearings frequently to speak out for federal bills, state bills, fish and wildlife bills. And when I go to those, I would frequently have to hire a bodyguard to go with me because these people would come up, they'd try to intimidate me, they'd follow me. Some of them would come up running and screaming at me in the lobbies of these places. 
one of them had actually physically attacked me twice. If there was anybody I could get a restraining order against, it would be Vernon Yates because he actually attacked Got me. Got you twice. Mind. And oh he hit gosh. one of my volunteers, not me, but he pushed her to the ground. And then another time as we were, I was going into another hearing for the Florida Wildlife Commission, he came running up behind me and tried to grab me by the hair. And this has just been what my life is like dealing with these animal abusers. They don't want anybody exposing what they do. They don't want anybody to know how horrible it is behind the scenes. And they can't figure out any way to shut me up other than kill me. So that's become just my day-to-day -day life of always being in that fight or flight mode. So these things that Joe were, was doing, that was just like more of the same. I mean, honestly, I they don't play by the rules, clearly. Um, but it's worked for wow. them because nobody else was willing to speak out against them. I can't tell you how many people have come up to me that are in the sanctuary community or um, people that have seen the abuse and said, you know, thank God you're taking all the bullets out there and all of the arrows in your back out there because... I don't want them coming after me. I don't want them coming after my family. I don't want them coming after my animals. And, you know, if, if all of us would join together, these bullies would have no power whatsoever. But right. their tactics have worked all these years. I mean, that's insane. Uh, I, I can't imagine living like that, knowing that if I try and spread the truth and try and stop some of these things that I see as injustices, people are going to come after me and try and kill me and hurt me. And I, that's nuts. That's nuts. So, I mean, thank you for the work that you do because I, you know, I don't know that we necessarily agree like a hundred thousand percent on every single little piece of it, but at least I know that there's somebody out there who does care about these animals and who is trying to stop some of the bad things that we do agree on from happening because I mean, they're, there's some bad actors out there. Um, but so tell me about the GW Zoo. Uh, what's going on with, with Jeff and Lauren Lowe? Where, who owns the zoo? Do you have it? What's, what's that whole situation like? So we won the case against Joe forever ago. But right. it's been going through bankruptcy court ever since then. And what he has done successfully time and time again is to take all of the assets and transfer them to a new name. And then we have to start the bankruptcy suit over on the new name. And even though I think it's now two cases ago, the judge specifically said, don't do this again. He did it again. And so he just keeps doing this over and over. So we're still going through that bankruptcy process. But in the course of all of that, the judge did award all of the assets to us. And that was not the animals because a tiger costs us $10,000 per year per cat just in food and veggies. Right. So the animals were not assets, but the things like the physical land, the cages, the buildings, the vehicles. And so sure. of course, not a single vehicle was left on the property that runs. But, um, and they have, you know, somebody has defaced all of the buildings that are there. And oh, wonder who did that. Yeah. So um, we did get the ownership of the zoo and we have it up for sale currently. I think we've got it listed for like 160000 But part of what our agreement will be with the new owner is they can never use it for exotic animals again. It could be a you know a horse farm or something like that, but not sure. anything to do with exotic animals. And so 
we've been piecing out the cages to uh, get them off of the property so that there's not even a remote chance of somebody trying to break that contract at some later point. And right. um, that's that's all going pretty well. In fact, I think they may have a tentative offer on it currently. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Nice so to- GW Zoo is, is no longer. Right. So we took that in October 3rd of last mm-hmm. year. And Jeff and Lauren Lowe had been given something like 180 days by the court to move. And so um, by October 1st, they were supposed to be out, took them until the 3rd, and they still didn't have everything out. So they left behind three tigers, two bears, and 11 wolves. And we worked with one of the accredited sanctuaries to take all of those animals. So they were all uh, removed as well. But there's still cases pending against Jeff and Lauren Lowe by the Department of Justice and by PETA. And so hopefully between those two, they will, and maybe USDA. I could be wrong about Department of Justice now that I think about it. That mm-hmm. might have been Tim Stark and Doc Antle that are dealing with the Department of Justice. But anyway. Everybody's got something. <laughs> yeah. Everybody from the show's got something going on with some sort of lawsuit. About animal abuse. Yeah. I mean, the difference between when we saw them in the show, and we're coming up on a year in less than two weeks that Tiger King came out and, and everyone, you know, binged it and, and it was crazy popular. Um, the difference between how we saw them then and what's going on now in terms of them actually having to face for some of their crimes is that's huge. You know, there, there's a big change. Um, last I heard of Jeff and Lauren, they were trying to plan out another zoo somewhere near uh, maybe it was in Texas or or you're like a casino. Do you know anything about that? Are they still trying to do a zoo? Do they still have all the animals? Yeah, they took the animals an hour south of the GW Zoo to Thackerville, which is right behind the Windstar Casino. And um, it would have been a good location for what they wanted to do. But they didn't want USDA inspecting them. And so they gave up their USDA license. Well, you can't exhibit animals without a USDA license. No. And so they tried to say, well, we're not going to have... Uh, visitors were just going to be like a film park where the only thing, the only people that come there are videographers and people that want to film things, and influencers too. <laughs> so right, right, that either, which is part of the trouble that they're in. Wow, I mean, again, since since the show came out, it seems like everybody's got some sort of lawsuit about animal abuses, and and things are coming out that uh, were not very clear in the show. They were a little foggy and. I think we're probably going to see some uh, some movement very soon here on a couple of those because hammer's coming down, so you better get out of the way. Oh, my goodness. Well, Carol, thank you so much for coming on the show. We definitely need to make sure that we have you on again uh, just to give more context later. But I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story. Um, where can people check you out? How can they help out? The biggest thing anybody can do if your audience is in the United States is to end the cub petting. And the way that we do that is at bigcatact.com. And when they go there, or if they text the word cats to 52886, and I have to say that data and messaging race may apply, but um, (laughs) either way, we'll get them to the same thing where they can send an email that we have pre-written for them. They can send a tweet to their member of Congress that we have pre-written for them. They can change it if they want to, but they don't have to. 
and they can make a call, which is even more important. It's like sending 200 letters to make a single call because people are so afraid to make a call to Congress. You're going to be talking to a 20-year-old aide. It's not a scary thing. But right. um, all we're asking people to ask them to do is to champion the Big Cat Public Safety Act. And that bill does two things. It stops cub petting and it phases out private ownership of big cats. So people that have them can keep them. They just can't buy or breed more. That seems pretty reasonable to me. Awesome. Well, guys, that has been our episode with Carol Baskin. Thank you guys all for listening. It allows me to do what I love to do, which is this, have really cool people on and and talk to them about all this kind of stuff. If you want to check out more episodes, you can go to www.totspodcast.com. We are also anywhere that you can find podcasts. Our big three, though, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. Definitely make sure to check us out there. We're also on a bunch of social media, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those. You can check us out at TotsCast. Thank you so much for listening. We post every Friday at 6 o'clock p.m., and I'll see you next week. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben.